Jesus' parables, his stories, are always deliberately controversial and this is no exception because uh, Jesus often draws kind of archetypal characters. He wants to draw extreme examples of what he's talking about and um, when he draws this Pharisee, the picture of this Pharisee, he draws a Pharisee who's doing remarkably good stuff because the law said you only had to fast once a year but this Pharisee was fasting twice a week, was it? And the tithe was not for all of your income, it was only for certain parts of your income, but this Pharisee was tithing all of his income. This was a very righteous Pharisee. And then if you wanted to find a character who was the antithesis of that, the tax collector was a ready example because the tax collector is somebody who is colluding with the enemy, someone who has betrayed God's people, someone who has sided with the oppressor. And so they were roundly regarded as sinners and betrayers. So this is a very stark image that Jesus draws. And let's think about it for a moment. How do we normally do acceptance? How do we normally try to fit in? We can't help but look at one another when we're trying to fit in and compare ourselves to each other. And we walk into a new context and we try to work out what are the rules here? What are the things you're allowed to do and the things you're not allowed to do? How do people dress in this context? And we do all of this kind of subconsciously. We don't know we're doing it. What are the things you can talk about here and what are the things you can't talk about here? And what are the accepted opinions? Where, where are people leaning politically? What would be okay to talk about and what would be dangerous to talk about? If you don't think you do that, well, it's possible that you don't, but it's also possible that it happens at such a subconscious level you don't realise how quickly you read the room and pick these things up and listen carefully and then start to respond and then correct yourself as you're doing it. The more concerned we are to fit in, the more cautious we will become about obeying what we believe to be the rules. We had an interesting experience while we were overseas. My youngest, Pei, got a little bit nervous because we were continually in new contexts. So we were in Taipei originally and then we went to London and then to uh, Windsor and then to Paris and she started to get a bit unnerved and her response to that was to make sure we obeyed all the rules. So we were crossing the road in London at one point and it was one of those rare occasions when there was no traffic or anything and there was a little laneway and we thought, oh, come on, let's go. And she said, no, it says don't walk. And we thought, come on. And she really, she said, no, we mustn't break the rules. It's not safe to break the rules. We don't know what will happen if we break the rules. And in all sorts of subtle ways, that's what we do. We work out what's the safe thing to do in order to fit in and we do that in part by comparing ourselves to one another. What's going on? So we can relate to the Pharisee, can't we? He's comparing himself with other people. Now, the thing about rules, of course, is if you... Uh, obey them to avoid trouble, the longer you do that, the more familiar you are with the rules and eventually you get opportunity to maximise your advantage while keeping the rules. You kind of work out how the rules work 
and you work out how you can make the rules work for you in what you want to do. This is true of any system at all, whether it's a taxation system or the systems of law or uh, social systems, politics, all that kind of thing. The longer you're in a system, the, the, the savvier you are about it, the more you can make it work for you. I remember a story when the Opal card first came out, you know, transport card, and uh, there was a news report about people uh, with a collection of Opal cards running between two of the light rail stops uh, here in uh, Haymarket because the rule was after you had eight trips on your Opal card, the rest of the week your travel was free because the idea was you had a trip to work and a trip home and uh, you got your last day of travel free. These people were jogging between the light rail stop, swiping a, a swag of cards, going up to the next stop, swiping off, running back, swiping them on. So they would get the cheapest little journey on the whole transport system. At that, that stage, I think it was like $1.80. They'd get eight times $1.80, and then the rest of their travel for the week would be free. You work out how the system works, and you game it. They didn't change the rules, of course, because people were gaming the system. The Pharisees' sense of righteousness was built on the comparison he drew with other people. He was grateful he was not like other men. There was probably no other men fasting twice a week and tithing all of their income. He was on pretty safe ground when he was comparing himself to other men. But we're always on dangerous ground when we're comparing ourselves to other other people. We can't help but do it, yet comparing ourselves to those around us is fraught with very real danger because we either compare ourselves favourably or unfavourably or approximately the same, but none of that is ultimately true because we're all different, aren't we? It's like comparing apples and oranges in a funny kind of way. We all live different lives, we all have different backgrounds, we have experienced different formative experiences and our response to those experiences have all been different and we make different meaning from them. We are all actually different, unique, wonderfully made in that sense. And in some ways none of us is exactly like anyone else except, ironically, in that we are all probably equally prone to compare ourselves with each other and those around us. The other problem with uh, the Pharisee here is that once you work out what the system demands of you and how to work it, you can achieve it. You can get over the bar, as it were. When righteousness is about achieving a certain standard of behaviour, it is, by definition, achievable. And... There's no point in a standard that's impossible to achieve, right? So we would say, well, these are the rules, this is what you've got to do, and if you get there, then you're righteous. If you satisfy the standard, uh, it's somewhat inevitable that you'll experience a certain amount of self-satisfaction. I have done this. I have achieved this. I have done well. I am okay. Now, part of the problem of that is, if that's your interest, then you'll probably turn away from anything that will get in the way of you achieving that, and invariably that probably means that you will turn away from other people. Because 
they might contaminate you with their unrighteousness. Your association with them might be problematic in your righteousness. Remember the story of the Good Samaritan and all the religious people crossed the road to keep away from the unclean person who might have been dead and would have contaminated them. People are problematic in that way. And if your, your goal is to stay righteous according to the rules, to get over that bar to achieve it, you won't go near anything that would risk that for you. And this understanding of righteousness is deeply corrosive to genuine relationship, which is the very thing that actual righteousness is actually about. We believe being righteous is about, if we believe that being righteous is about obeying a set of rules that govern our behaviour, this will actually cause us to turn away and cut off and keep distant from other people and focus on being as acceptable as we can be according to whatever rule set we happen to be using. And this is a very, very brittle acceptance. It's inherently brittle because at any moment you could stumble and fall below the standard. You could become unrighteous, unacceptable, rejected as it were. And that will... um, you know, we like to, to plot our progress according to how everyone else is going. If, if everyone else is not doing as well as us, we feel okay. If everyone's doing better than us, according to whatever thing we're doing, then we feel worse than that. But it becomes quickly a very vicious kind of cycle. It, and it holds within it a viciousness that is very dangerous, I think. The seeds of scapegoating and victim blaming are all in that comparative process. Precisely because of our need to identify other people who are less acceptable than us so that we feel safe in our acceptableness. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. When I was a young Christian, I was part of a particular Christian group and it wasn't uncommon for us to know about other Christian groups and visit different groups and we would come away, my friends and I, go, hmm, that group, they're not very well taught, actually. Or, Or that group a little bit emotional, very, very much driven by their emotions. Or, or that, that, those ones aren't very biblical. They, you know, they, just, they seem to have gone away from the Bible. And we constantly wanted to compare what we were doing or who we were with other people, seeing them in a less favourable light because we were getting it right. We were the righteous ones, as it were. But the reality is none of us really, on our own, have standing before God. The only person we can really helpfully compare ourselves to is Jesus. Do that and see how you come out. We have no claim before God. If we seek to justify ourselves before God, we will always be found wanting. Always. But the good news, of course, is God's incredible generosity towards us. God graciously offers us acceptance without us needing to jump through particular hoops. If we mistakenly think that acceptance depends on us and what we do, then we cannot be responding to the grace that is offered to us because we're relying on what we do and we miss the point, as it were, So we often have to let go of any notion of self-righteousness and it's not a once 
thing, I reckon, because we're so prone to this comparative thing and our sense of self-righteousness. We need to be reminded again and again. We have to shift our trust from what we do to trust in the gracious heart of God. And that can be quite difficult for some of us because we don't really experience that gracious acceptance in many places in our life. And so it's hard to trust that God is really that gracious. It takes faith to believe in a God who will accept us just as we are. And even when we believe the theory of that or the theology of it, it takes time to really trust it in our bones, in our deepest gut, as it were. But that's a really important thing because as we trust that, we find a capacity to accept ourselves and accept other people and that's where love really grows. That's where the grace of God becomes most apparent to us. The upshot of all this, of course, is that we all stand on the same ground. Nobody looks up to anybody else and nobody looks down to anybody else. No matter what, no matter who you are, we all stand on the same ground. And in a moment we're going to gather around this table, the symbol of gathering as the body of Christ. And we're not able to stand there on account of anything that we have done. We stand there on account of the gracious invitation of the host who bids us to come. None of us in any way, any worse than anybody else, none of us in any way, any better than anyone else. We stand in the grace of Christ and I put it to you, that's the only place to stand if you want to stand for all eternity. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you that you have set us free from the diabolical trap of comparing ourselves to one another. And you've called us into honesty and into love. We thank you that you've demonstrated that for us and you've given yourself to us for that and you bid us to come and to follow. And we simply say yes and amen. Amen.